Welcome to a new episode of the next big thing. Today I want to talk to you about an ancient land. A land that is hallowed by its saints, protected by its warriors and worshiped by its farmers. I want to talk to you about Punjab. Now I haven't been lucky enough to be born in the state of Punjab, but I have been lucky enough to be raised by a Punjabi family with values and culture that hail from the state. Growing up, my ideas about Punjab were formed by stories of valor and sacrifice. stories of abundance and happiness but this all changed when i read an article last november the article was titled counting the corpses of punjab when i opened the article i saw a picture from operation blue star my presumption was that the article would describe the tragic events of operation blue star and the dark decade that followed the darkest decade of punjab which me along with millions of punjabis are striving to forget but as i went through the article my presumptions were shattered The article actually was a precursor to the book Punjab a journey through fault lines. Both the article and the book were written by Amandeep Sandhu. Moments after reading the article I found myself holding the book in my hands. The book was a description of the author's personal journey through his motherland. The book bridged the gap between the reality and the imagination of Punjab. A gap that has existed in the mind of every Punjabi. The book bridges the gap between the identity and the stereotype of punjab a gap that has existed in every description of punjab the book was politically neutral yet engaging engaging enough to get a lazy reader like me to finish the book cover to cover within weeks months later i happened to contact amandeep amandeep like a fellow punjabi was humble and very forthcoming he readily agreed to join us on this podcast Amandeep like me was born outside Punjab. He grew up listening to the same stories that I did and had the same ideas about Punjab before he went on his journey. Amandeep is a passionate writer. He has worked for leading English dailies and has covered Punjab in great detail. He has previously written two fiction books, Roll of Honor and Sepia Leaves, and his latest work on Punjab has been appreciated across borders. Amandeep, you know, welcome to the podcast. Pehli gal main welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much. One of the things that I was thinking today morning, you know, sitting about this podcast, I realized that at the same time while the rest of India was developing an archetype for Punjab using movies like Urta Punjab and others, you were on the ground doing research, you know, destroying those archetypes and trying to get the people's version out. Punjab is a symbol of resistance to ideologies, and your book is a symbol of resistance to those archetypes that have been created using Bollywood. using you know things like uh, urta punjab so i really felt that this is one book that you know anyone who's who's associated with punjab should read so related to that i wanted to ask a question you say that you know jodh se punjab gaye so you were in search of micro worlds punjab was known by small things which were not correlated with each other that was your major motivation 
and you were in search of a central theme. Could you elaborate on the fact that, you know, why this story wasn't coherent to you before? And when you went to Punjab, what central theme did you find there? Well, first of all, thank you to, for looking at my book as a piece of resistance. I mean, I really had not thought of it. Uh, my editor and I were very clear that it is a story of reality versus representation. One of the ideas which led me to go to the book was, as I describe in the book, that there are these many terms that come up when you think of Punjab. And uh, those are the terms that don't sit well with each other. For example, how does Langar sit with militancy? Or how does uh, Sufi or even the Sikhitos sit with liquor? How does the female feticide sit with an egalitarian society? Why does Punjab have the largest number of Dalit population in the country, 31.9%? So these were various questions in my mind. And I, I went in to understand that. And then while you were looking at those micro worlds, while you were exploring Punjab, did a central theme come out of that story? Did you see something that was common you know, in all these micro worlds that you were trying to stitch together? If you look at it, there are two large conflicts in Punjab. One is about these micro worlds not sitting with each other and fighting with each other. For example, even then, if you look at the Punjab society politically, there are three main groups, right? There are the left-oriented people. There are the radical Sikhs who we call radical Sikhs, though they are actually just Sikhs, you know, like, and then there is a Hindu population, which feels uh, uh, uncertain with this kind of rhetoric going on around them. I do think that below these, there are two more, which we normally don't look at, and that is women and caste, you know, and, and they do not form the meta-narratives of Punjab, but all of them are conflicting with each other. And yet there is a larger conflict that Punjab has, and that is with the center, with Delhi. And it is even ancient. It, it, it goes back to the Mughal times, it goes back to the British time. And sadly, it goes back even into our democratic structure. Of, so these are the two major conflicts that are all the time going on in Punjab. But what I have been seeing is, you know, you describe Punjab as a land of resistance, as a land of resilient people in your book. That does fit with the historical uh, part of Punjab. All resistance movements in India, they had their epicenter in Punjab. But where has that resistance gone, Aman? Uh, I was trying to fit that theme of resistance in today's scenario. And I don't see any particular resistance to the conditions that Punjab is in right now. Instead of resistance, I'm seeing some sort of escapism, if you may. When you go and see the utter tragedy of Punjab today, the poverty there, the fights that are going on, the confusion about governance, the lack of trust in a system. So then you see that the state is a, is a superstructure which is trying to impose itself on the common people, but the people on the ground are actually resisting it. Yet their stories are not being told. And my, my idea to, to write this book finally was to be able to tell the story from the ground of Punjab and bring it together. Just like I said earlier, I hope more and more people go and seek the Punjab that they have imagined, but which is very different from the Punjab on the ground. Again, coming back to the book, you start with the quote uh, and then you follow it with the preface with the first line being Ki Lasha pen gaya, a quote by Satpal Danish from, uh, from Amrit Saras. Why did you start the book with that line? I believe there is a metaphorical meaning to this. Correct me if I'm wrong. It is both literal and metaphor. For Satpal ji, it is utterly literal. 
he is a eminent photographer and uh, he covered uh, the sikh movement from 1978 onwards you know and uh, he saw many 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 deaths including operation blue star and by the time i came to him i was in this frame of mind that this punjab doesn't at all resemble the punjab i imagined all my life you know i was stunned bewildered shocked by what i had seen on the ground but when satpal ji said this line to me it suddenly settled see any traveler is looking for something and i realized subconsciously i was looking for stories of resistance stories of bravery stories of valor but the flip side of those stories was corpses deaths killings extrajudicial killings you know and i realized i am on the right journey but i am looking at the wrong thing so i'm very thankful to danish ji for having given me that line because right. it it gave me the mental space to be able to assimilate what i was seeing to be able to look at it and then to be able to write about it right i mean i could really appreciate the poetic uh, meaning behind it but what i also took from that is ki everything that happens in punjab on the face it looks good but on the flip side there's you know corpses to be counted after that and that yes. even includes the green revolution the corpses of the green Absolutely. revolution first of all people automatically assume that the green revolution happened in the 1970s uh, in punjab or 1960s in punjab you in the book you know destroy that assumption and say that the green revolution has actually been going on before that in a way i feel green revolution itself is a wrong metaphor of sorts you know because i mean the idea of revolution is a left idea <laughs> it is karl marx is this thing i am not saying that there were no revolutions before karl marx of course there were you know but but the idea of a revolution is basically a change in the modes of production of whatever is being produced for society you know and marx does a phenomenal job of his analyzing the modes of production changing if you look at when did punjab's modes of production change it was in the end of the 19th century when the british had already come and were settled and punjab was really beyond afghanistan it was touching the russian border you know and there was this fear between russia and britain and so the british had to lay down train lines and cantonment stations so that the army can be moved there quickly if something sparks there and they realized that this is a land of five rivers and the people are hard working they were valiant warriors in the battles with them and they realized this is where we can grow crops and they built this whole canal colony you know mindgumri rawalpindi all these areas came up there was an exchange of populations happened from what is today's this eastern punjab to that people from hoshiarpur from your place gurdaspur were taken there given land to till that to me was a real revolution in agriculture what happened in the 60s was the discovery norman burlaw's discovery of the dwarf wheat new forms of rice were found uh, and we india was facing a great food crisis now this punjab indian punjab is 1.5% of india's land and it started producing more than 60% of india's food needs but how did that happen not only because of dwarf wheat fertilizers insecticides tractors come and later by the 80s combine harvesters so you bring in so much technology into 
whether it is chemical technology or mechanical technology, this granary of the nation, you know. And that now, 40 years later, has drastic effects on the land. You know, the land is leached. It is full of chemicals. People are getting cancer. People are getting other illnesses. Heart attacks are a huge thing. Fibrosis is a huge thing, you know. Many people get their knees replaced. And this is the effect of Green Revolution. You know, you ask yourself that question. Yeah. You ask the why those farmers are protesting. They were protesting against these policies of the government. And there is basically an enslavement of the farmer, if you think about it. The farmer, you know, by the nature of the profession should be a free uh, creature and he should have the freedom to grow whatever he wants to and sell Absolutely. wherever he wants to. But somehow Absolutely. that freedom has not materialized you know, once your agricultural economy starts developing, you want to see something like the U.S. materialize, where agriculture is basically happening at a very efficient scale. What we have seen here is an enslavement of the farmer in a system which you describe as claustrophobic. Uh, can you describe what this enslavement is? How is the farmer trapped in this Arthia mechanism? I mean, a farmer is the freest citizen of the world, you know. You know, he owns a whatever land, one acre, five acres, 20 acres, you know, and he should have the freedom to grow anything he wants, which he wants to eat, make a house in that. And that's all your food and your shelter is taken care of. You do not have to depend on the state for anything. You know, you could even put a solar heater today to generate your own electricity if you want to do that. You know, But the fact is that uh, about 85% of peasantry in Punjab is deeply under loans by institutional and non-institutional structures, which are banks, cooperative banks, the money lenders, the commission agents, the RPS, you know, and no one is free. And then there is another level of uh, enslavement, which is to this monoculture of Punjab, to the wheat and paddy routine that they have to follow. Because in wheat, they hardly make any profit. Paddy gives some money, but paddy keeps drinking up all the water from the Punjab's aquifers. So paddy is Punjab's addiction. And it can't break out of the habit. Paddy technically is not meant to grow in Punjab, right? Like you yes, say that in the absolutely. Punjab used to grow jowar. Punjab used to grow bajra. Punjab used to grow maize. But that is not growing now. It is only paddy and wheat and some belts of cotton. So this, this rice that Punjab is producing actually is guzzling up Punjab's own water. And Punjab can't get out of it because if a farmer needs two or three years of being able to shift from one crop to another. Hmm. And that support is not coming from the government. But yeah. do, you, do you think the recent reforms in agriculture that have been pushed uh, in the last month, to see follow Kittahuna, uh, the APMC abolition and all, do you think that will help here? Why did the APMC come in in the first place? <laughs> you know, so if something is being abolished, you have to see why it came in. Frankly, ever since India adopted the new liberal policies, we started focusing on industry. We started focusing on creating a bigger middle class who can live comfortably in the cities. Liberalization itself did not reach the agricultural sector. And if it reached there, it reached there in terms of these marketing boards or some APMCs and all that. But that is hardly serving the purpose. It, it, it showed, I mean, it did not serve the purpose. Liberalization was important for India. I mean, that license permit Raj was not a good thing. But we needed a second or third stage of liberalization 
to actually reach the agrarian sector. What happened is that through liberalization now, a huge agro-marketing sector came up and it started making greater and greater prof profits for its owners, not for the farmers. So merely abolishing some APMC and something is not going to really help. This dismantling of APMC is too late to come. I mean, it is. see, the, the big thing that the farmers are demanding are the Swaminathan Commission report, which itself is a decade old today. And Swaminathan Commission did not only ask you to change the MSP of products, it asks you to, to create drainage. It asks you to create wells. It asks you to Im implement land sealing. These are very decorative, minor changes that they do and they think that they are solving something. Urban India claps at them. But for the farmer on the ground, nothing has changed. And one thing your book has done is to bridge that gap, actually. I mean, we are all, technically, we are all in that class of urban Indians, if you call those. And yes. what you have done is, you know, uh, and that's why I recommend your book to anyone who is you know, capable enough to uh, read it, to at least see what is going on in the rural Punjab. So I want to come to a second part of Punjab, religious coexistence. We were talking about it just before uh, we started recording. Religious coexistence is a theme that you bring up in your book. It's a very fascinating theme because everywhere in the West, there are distinct lines, even in India now. There are distinct lines between religious practices. You know, Jews won't go to churches. Uh, Christians won't go to synagogues. What did you see uh, that made you insist on this religious coexistence so much? No, because it's fascinating. No, like, of course, partition happened in this very land. But post-partition, in the last 72 years, and during my time there, this huge incident of sacrilege, not one, but over 200 sacrileges, all that can seem to be you know, that where are the communities standing with each other or with, away from each other. But actually, the whole of Punjab was together. Everybody knew that this is actually a fight against the political class rather than amongst each other. In the last 72 years, there has not been a single communal riot in Punjab. You know, this is not acknowledged outside because you say, oh, militancy happened, they wanted Khalistan, you know, so Punjab is a communal state. But that is not the fact. Communalism is very, very low in Punjab. Of course, the Arya Samaj is an old stranglehold in Punjab. They were formed in Punjab. And then they offshoot the RSS. And then the new offshoot, the BJP and the Hindu Mahasabha and all that. Uh, they, they constantly try to mess up the situation. But people are still being able to stand with each other. You could find an odd Hindu speaking very harshly about Sikhs. You could find an odd Sikh speaking very harshly about Hindus, but generally they are peaceful with each other. They are actually what I call eclectic. You know, as you pointed out, they go to each other's places of worship, they believe in each other's gods, all that happens. Right. And, you know, what is interesting is that even pre-partition Punjab, this is what I hear from, you know, our ancestors who have lived in pre-partition Punjab, they tell us that there was no particular animosity between Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs and it was all a created political uh, stunt from the British, which ultimately resulted into the Muslim League and, you know, RSS and things like that. But very, very interesting to know that a state which has been tagged as communal is actually not communal on the ground. And then, you know, the same thing that you were talking about, Arya Samaj. I have been reading about the Arya Samaj and the institutions that, pros uh, that propped up on the Sikh side as a response to Arya Samaj, which is the... Singh Sabha and the SGPC. It seems to me on the on the very uh, 
in the very core ideology of these uh, these organization was to distinguish their identity from the other religious identity so basically rs samaj is you know trying to make a separate identity for hindus the sgpc comes out sorry not the sgpc the singh sabha comes out in resistance to rs samaj to say that sikhs are not hindus this kind of mentality has never existed in punjab before the advent of these uh, institutions so there are basically two issues here one is sikhs believe and guru nanak started it that we are not going to be idolatry so anybody who brings an idolatry into it starts seeming like you know you're corrupting the view you know in the in the religious space in the cultural space it keeps happening even today that's that's and this is this is exactly the the paradox of punjab which i also set out to look at i beyond the micro worlds and the other is do you have a living guru or do you consider guru gobind singh ji to be the last among the 10 gurus and then the guru granth sahib as the 11th guru forever it is on these two lines idolatry and guru that everybody differs in punjab and when dayanand saraswati comes i've described it in the book as well you know like he thinks he has found something he has found like the real religion is to go back to the vedas and he comes and encounters guru nanak and the other sikh masters and he realizes oh guys these guys already know this you know so how will i set up my shop here and a lot of hindus were at that time converting into sikhism and so he's created the arya samaj to separate you know keep his people aside from the sikh fold though we all learn that the eldest son used to become a sikh anyway in families and uh, so families were mingled but religion was divided and then there was also this the british game of idolatry inside gurdwara premises and giving gurdwara premises to the mahants to run so the singh sabha movement came out not so much against the arya samaj but actually to liberate the gurdwaras from the mahants that the british had uh, given the gurdwaras to it also sought to delineate and this is harjot obrai's brilliant book which says that demarcation of religious boundaries how does that happen and any boundary that you make and i now realize is it is both it gives you an identity but it also cuts you off you know so we lost in this other prathada who is a living guru we lost the namdharis the kukas the udasis all the sects that actually believed in the sikh ethos we kept them out right and what you are talking about is the sikh religion originally the guru nanak's message and even for some to some extent guru gobind's message was a message of inclusiveness it wasn't yes. a message of exclusiveness but the yes. sikh institutions that propped up after the singh sabha movement you know the child institutions of the singh sabha movement are all trying to be exclusive they're not trying to be inclusive this includes organizations like the sgpc the chief khalsa diwan and you mentioned this in the book that we need another singh sabha movement to abolish this kind of exclusiveness why do you think so yeah because i think that is the only way our honestly our community and our identity and our religion can be snatched back from the corporate hands into which it has gone the last 20 25 years ever since badal took charge of lgpc you know it has just become a corporate religion you know because they're based on our donations right i mean what where does the, the gurdwara get its money from it gets its money from the golak and who is contributing to the golak it is ordinary people whether sikhs or hindus many muslims many christians also come to gurdwaras you know 
people feel gurdwaras are these inclusive spaces but inside these inclusive spaces they have defined an exclusive boundary for themselves and they have started functioning like a company you know and which has vested interests and in that way they have gone far away from the teachings of the guru and that is the issue you know today the akali hold on the gurdwara system is so deep and not only within punjab haryana himachal even in delhi they have a hold on we have to snatch it back from that so that we recover who we are right. and we open it up to people who believe in the guru granth sahib they right. can be sikhs every religion functions by enhancing its circle of influence right. there are there is a purity argument that goes on for example the taliban thinks that they are the purest of the muslims right mm. but then they become a destructive force right and uh, do you think that the propping up of these other corporate factories the deras you visited a bunch of them is that a result of the sgpc trying to be exclusive and not including people so the people who got excluded trying are trying to find others definitely it plays a role i mean when you look at dalits when you look at the disenfranchised when you look at villages segregating even cremation grounds not only gurdwaras you realize that these people don't know where to go so they go to whoever then says the same things that sikhs are saying we are equal but there are two or three things to note here is one is a, there are i mean some studies have said there are about 9000 deras at punjab i mean that's also a figure which is of <laughs> mythical proportions you know but there are many and there are definitely hundreds uh but the big ones which i have outlined in the book they are all controlled by sikhs or by jats except yeah. one the ashutosh maharaj one you know which is controlled by a bihari mm. you know like so it is very interesting that everywhere you know it is somebody else who is benefiting from people's belief in them mm. you know the ordinary dalit doesn't know any better i mean and he need not know any better also mm. somebody is giving him a shelter and he is going ask seeking a shelter he goes into it. Mm-hmm. but then they exploit so this ram rahim guy controlled 38 constituencies in haryana and punjab right yeah. so that is the reach they have and the other theme about punjab you know religion is a big theme that dominates every conversation about punjab sometimes the conversation of punjab you know goes away from religion and comes to the issue of border the nationalism jingoism that has propped up in the indian media for the last 5 years you talk about it in your book and you say that the nationalism on indian tv sets and middle class houses is very different from the nationalism you see on the border type, border districts in punjab see the uri attack happened when i was there and badal had ordered that all farmers should vacate 10 kilometers of land next to the border and it, and a farmer cannot leave his field right and here is this pull that i have worked on this crop for the last 4 months it is if i sell it it's going to give me some money and relieve me of some debt mm-hmm. and you are asking me to abandon it and go away where will i go mm-hmm. you made no camps for them you took no care of where they will go you know mm-hmm. so they are they are in two minds so i go down to meet them and i ask them i said i asked them a very bad question i say okay you have been moved around a couple of times until now you know 47 65 71 operation prakram operation mm-hmm. brass tax sargil mm-hmm. war and now which was the best moving out mm-hmm. you know, so they said we can tell you which was the worst so they said 71 was the worst because we were 
we have moved back and forth and then told to stay and then the war started and then 65 was the best because the army crossed over us and held the the border and started fighting with pakistan and we also just held back and we served the army we created langars for them we created trenches for them we did all the work that was required by the army so finally all this rhetoric on which the hindu rashtra is today being created in the television studios the real people who will face the enemy fire are in punjab are on that border yes. and they actually have good relations with people across the border but another thing that punjab has talked about a lot and it's basically the elephant in the room and we have been trying to go there a little bit in this conversation is the issue of khalistan right the issue of khalistan as a term the issue of khalistan as a movement can you please describe in like the word khalistan the disambiguation of that word it's a bogey word today politicians use it to their advantage and their convenience and they use it whenever they feel that things cannot be explained by anything so invoke khalistan in this the fact is that the idea of khalistan is not a 1980s phenomena it has a longer history and that history goes back to the time when the akalis had just won the gurdwara movement they were standing up for themselves as an identity as a community and in 1929 when motilal nehru brought about the purna swaraj resolution in lahore there were three people and three groups who opposed it one was mohammad ali jinnah second was baba saheb ambedkar and third was uh, a leader on behalf of master tara singh from the akalidal and the reason they they opposed it was they said that we want proportional representation we do not want this majoritarian elections you know because we are minorities in many parts of the country and if you do elections with equal franchise we will never get to power later on the phule ambedkar pact happens and the bahujans for a for a while they feel okay this is fine because gandhi was very adamant on that jinnah's trajectory leads into the creation of pakistan finally and the sikhs are left nowhere in the 40s they did raise it again and again there was a resolution for azad punjab even the term khalistan was used sikhistan was used but it didn't go anywhere because a the war and second the partition because when partition happened and sikhs were asked they said no we'll stand by india after 47 until 66 you can consider there was a period when the idea of khalistan became the punjabi subha because suddenly there was this fight over language the indian state was not willing to accept punjabi and so that created a rift that created huge protests mm-hmm. 10 years of punjabi subha movement finally you don't get a subha you get a small little truncated punjab out of mm-hmm. which other states are carved out you know so that is a period where you see the second phase of khalistan Mm-hmm. and then the 1978 until 1995 period which includes the dharam yudh morcha where punjab is after being truncated so badly and its waters being stolen by other states it stood up for its water issue which ballooned almost into a militant movement janal singh bindra wale comes up uh, then in a very very unthought manner the operation blue star is conducted it could have been easily avoided you know you did not have done that mrs gandhi is assassinated sick pogrom happens 
then the militancy grows and grows in Punjab, and you impose five years of president's rule back to back. You know, all democracy is suspended in that period. So this is the third phase of Khalistan sure. until '93, and then even the Akalis started their '97, '98 election campaign with the idea that we will bring justice to the aggrieved families of Punjab. And as soon as Badal wins the election, he says, oh, forget it. But for the last two, two and a half decades, the generation you belong to, they are saying human rights and justice. So today, Khalistan, the same word, and it might be a limitation of our imagination, or it might be a need to, to create bigger meanings of this word, but we are lumping everything together under this one word called Khalistan. And that, I think, is very bad for conversation, very bad for how we take the argument ahead. Because right. today's Khalistan stands for human rights. It stands for justice. It stands right. against those extrajudicial killings, mm -hmm. those disappearances that happened, in which right. police played a major, major role. And yeah. there are these few organizations like Insaf who are now trying to document how many thousands were killed. Yeah. It's a chilling, it's a chilling website. I mean, I, after reading your book and you also referenced it at the end, I went to the Insaf website and they have a good YouTube channel also. I saw it and said, I was sitting there and just watching those videos in awe. So you're right. The, the, the whole police brutality that was seen in the eighties to nineties decade, it's beyond imagination. And KPS Gill at the end of it has the guts to say that it was the most humane anti-militancy campaign yeah. ever. Not taking too much of a political stance here. What I think is that as a nation state, if a region, and this is not only Punjab, it happens in Bastar, it happens in, it happened in Mizoram, it happened in Manipur, it is going on in Kashmir right now. When all this happens, people are actually asking the state to take accountability, to become humane, mm -hmm. to make justice transparent. These are good suggestions for a nation state which wants to grow. But sadly, since Punjab, we are now seeing a much, much greater level of horror going on. And we are becoming I, a more and more militant state itself. And, and the theme that I see across these, you know, Manipur, Mizoram, Bastar, is the fundamental destruction of the state citizen, like you tell about the Russo's ideology of the state citizen relationship. When that is broken, the state has to reach out with justice to mend that relationship, which it has absolutely done in it. See, all the issues which went into the Anandpur Sahib resolution, which came out both before emergency and after emergency during the Dharam Yudh Morcha, you know, they were issues pertaining simply to Punjab's needs at that time. But those needs still stand. Yes. 50 years have happened, nothing has moved on them. Yes. Three, four more needs have come and joined themselves in that long list today. Right. You know, and the state has not moved at all to assuage Punjab's moves. You know, the, and uh, pact is Akali's legacies, right? That they have the it's their name is written everywhere on that resolution. Why haven't they picked it up yet? See, it is very convenient. You no, know? it is very convenient. As soon as they go out of power, they start saying, "Oh, human rights. Oh, this thing, that thing." When they are in power, they do nothing because right. it is ultimately, as we talked earlier, it has become a corporate caucus of sorts. You know? right. It only looks at its company's interest. It is not looking at the community's interest. And I think it is very high time that we disband the Akalis. We, right. as, you, as you saw in the book and you asked earlier, there needs to be a Singh Sabha 2.0. We right. have to reclaim who we were from right. all this that has been thrown upon us. 
I want to come to the police brutality. I mean, this is one thing that has come up once again in this COVID. You see those videos of turban tied Punjab police officers beating, you know, people on scooters and things like that. Twitter was basically looking at Punjab police again in its face and saying what is happening here. But they, what they forget is this tradition, like you said, is way older. It goes on through the 80s, 90s, and it's even more older than that. Can you shed light upon why is the police in Punjab so inhumane? Is it the British culture that has transcended into today's modern police in Punjab? Well, that is one way of looking at it. Definitely, no doubt about it. There are two or three things here. One is that the cultural ethos of our societies remains in discipline and fun. We don't look at ourselves as liberated citizens who are responsible. And if we are going on the wrong path and somebody tells us politely, we will be on the mend. You know, so police also comes from our society. Police doesn't come from somewhere else. So that is something which is cultural. And this discipline and punish remains a largely Punjabi, North Indian ethos. For everything it it is used. It's used when we were kids, it is used to slap us into being right, you know, doing the right thing, to do the homework, to drink the glass of milk or whatever. And it continued. The other aspect of it is that police was also under not only British, but under the Maharaja Mm -hmm. who used the police. You know, if you look at the whole, again, going back to the Muzara chapter of the book, you know, Mm -hmm. you see how brutal the police was under Maharaja of Patiala. They were given unlimited powers to do whatever you want to do with citizens. So that also goes into making of the police. And this president's rule that I mentioned to you, Mm-hmm. You know, when there is no legislature, mm-hmm. when the judiciary is busy recusing itself, and when the executive is the IES officer is lower than the police DGP in their functioning, mm-hmm. then the police just gets used to power. It gets mm-hmm. used to drunk power. Yeah. But this some, somehow seems a theme in Punjab that, you know, talk about caste and everything. The people who are in the police, I mean, the IPS officers are generally in deputation from other sides of the country. But the people who are on the ground are usually Punjabis, most likely Jat Sikhs. And they still have this sense of power in them that they brutalize over their own people. This is something unprecedented. Another research scholar at Stanford after reading the book said to me, he said, you have to examine the relationship of the Sikhs with the state. How do the Sikhs adapt their religion to what the state needs and fulfill the state and become the state's organ to fulfill those things? You know, like, for example, the great role that Sikh soldiers played in World War I and World War II. Whose battle were you fighting? Why were you fighting those battles in Europe, in the Middle East? What were you serving? You were serving, serving the queen? Big question to ask. What is the contours of the relationship of the Sikhs with the state throughout history? And the individual Sikh with the state. You know, you have a Sikh on one side who is rebelling against the state and the same kind of Sikh who's trying to have the same symbols, wearing khaki and doing the exact opposite. That's an interesting one though. We can go on about that. But I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the mental health perspective. You say that the Punjab and you literally say that Punjab is a mental health time bomb. I wanted to know why you... I ended up on that conclusion. Was it the people you met? Was it the general sense of claustrophobia you saw around you? It is desperation and depression, mostly. Uh, depression because of, uh, there would be genetic basis, definitely, but it is poverty. And it is feeling strangulated inside the system, unable to break out of it. You must remember that 
Sikh religion in itself was was a revolution in thinking and in how people conduct themselves through their lives. And the Sikhs did keep living up to that image what that was cast for them by the Guru. And now, inside the state structure, they feel emasculated. They feel trapped. Mm -hmm. There is rage building up inside. And that is what I talk in the book, that anger turned inwards then becomes depression. So that is creating a lot of issues. We also have to see that it remains a feudal structure still, in spite of all democracy and all that, inside families, inside you know, subcultures, it remains very feudal. Mm -hmm. you know, with a modern world from outside enticing you, asking you to break out. On the gender side, if you look at it, there is a lot of patriarchy. And it informs a lot of Punjabi culture. Right. And the women feel strangulated. The women feel claustrophobic. Right. So all it turns is inside you. And it, it brings you to depression. It brings you to high levels of stress. It's important because it's unacknowledged, completely unacknowledged. So it's a good thing that you brought out in your book. And this I is, thinking... See, this is again, Punjab kind of prides itself in its valorous stories. You know, yeah. I keep saying, uh, just today morning, I was having a talk with a Theoretician, agricultural theoretician, actually, and we, we were discussing this that why doesn't Punjab acknowledge at all? And you realize that when you have very little agency to change your present, hmm. then you keep harking back to the past. If you have agency to change the present, then you will you will come from the past naturally. It is your baggage, it is your lineage, you know. But you will change the future. But Punjab is unable to do it, and that's why it keeps harking back on its valorous qualities. Now, I wanted to ask you about the future of Punjab. Do you think Punjab is transforming from a geographical region to an idea, a diasporic idea, which has spread across the world and is going to live through its diaspora? I agree with that a lot now because I see that the more they are tightening the news on Punjab, so to say, uh, the more people are saying, yeah, I have these values. I can work hard. I'll go and live in those systems where my hard work is rewarded instead of here where I'm drowning under debt. And that is driving a lot of people abroad. In a way, it is a great thing to happen. I mean, Punjab then becomes a tree with aerial roots. You know, it has roots mm -hmm. all over, you know, and which is a great idea. But the sad fact is that Punjab still doesn't come together through its diaspora and through its own division across the border. You know, that too is Punjab. West Punjab is also Punjab. I make that argument as well in the book that we are the ninth largest language in the world and we can create a mini world for ourselves. So yes. bridge relations with Pakistan, the states will never do it. But yes. let Punjab talk to Punjab. Mm -hmm. Let diaspora bring in money. Let right. Punjab help each other, you know, and let's prosper together as a community. And this is beyond religion. This is language. So the future of Punjab is in its unity of identity the Punjabi identity, be it across borders, be it across different countries. Uh, I have an optimistic view about it because somehow wherever Punjabis have gone throughout the world, the culture has stayed with them. Unlike a lot of other diasporas, it has managed to stay with them. So, In fact, it goes and influences other cultures. Exactly. You know? Yeah. You know, but while we can be optimistic about it, there is one thing that I would want to add here is that without its roots being in the soil, it should not just become all an aerial tree. So what is very important to do, and I'm hoping this book will trigger that discussion, mm -hmm. is that we start looking at Punjab as a post-conflict land. 
right? The conflict of partition, the conflict of the dark decade, the conflict of the green revolution, all these conflicts. We'll, we start looking aggressively at Punjab to provide a healing touch. I'm not saying it aggressive in the sense of aggressive Punjabi hospitality, but yes. in the sense of keeping our focus on healing. Right. You know, because when the roots are deep and they are stable, then the tree grows much bigger. No, absolutely. And uh, the things you have mentioned, you know, since about 2.0, treating Punjab as a post-conflict zone, I think there should be a conversation around around these things. Hopefully, you you know, you can spark a conversation around these things as you uh, participate in more dialogues. And uh, with that, I would like to, it's a good hope about the future of Punjab. And with that, I would like to conclude the discussion here. All right. So that's it for today's podcast. If you like this podcast, you'll love Amandeep's book. It's called Punjab, A Journey Through Fault Lines by Westland Publishers. It's available on Amazon worldwide. Do check it out. Amazing read. Highly recommended. Before we leave, keep listening and stay safe.